begin turning your Bibles to uh, the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians chapter 1. I hope you've enjoyed our series on shepherding for the glory of God. I hope that you're being challenged uh, with the Word and trusting that um, that the the scriptures are shaping us as elders as well as we pray shaping you as those um, who he has called to fellowship with us and uh, we're hearing some good feedback and we're very thankful that the Lord is is um, doing uh, such a thing today our topic is feeding the sheep just to recap we're going through four main ideas uh, Adam introduced this series to us. Last week we talked about um, the, the idea of knowing the sheep and how because of our relationship with Christ by His sovereign grace, because we are known by Him before the foundation of the world, that that actually becomes the foundation for our knowingness, if we could say it that way, uh, our being known in this church and in the universal church by the elders, that the elders seek to know you because you have already been known in Christ. We want to know you and we want to minister to you uh, on a practical level because Christ has first known you. Today, we, the topic is feeding the sheep. And so we'll be in Colossians chapter 1, starting verse 24. The next following two passages that we'll look at, or the next two topics we'll look at, will be leading the sheep and last, protecting the sheep. And in the end, um, our desire is to lay out a shepherding plan so that you will know how we desire to shepherd you as a congregation, as a membership, and in turn you would hold us accountable to those things and receive those things well. Um, and what better way to do that than to preach through a series, to find truths from the Scriptures, so that when we shepherd, we shepherd according to the way Christ would have us shepherd. I read an interesting article um, today, this, this, this morning, about the Reformation doctrine called sola scriptura. Um, it's the principle that uh, we submit to the Scripture as our final authority on faith and practice. And this writer, Eric Raymond, writing for the Gospel Coalition, asked the question, do a lot of people in the church really actually not believe in sola scriptura as much as they believe in sola cardia? Sola cardia would be the heart alone. And you think about that for a minute. Because when we believe in the sufficiency of God's Word for faith and practice as our final authority, then it doesn't really matter what our heart says because we know that our heart is deceitful, that our heart is wicked, that sometimes things that feel good are actually the most wicked places and practices of life. So if we go into the scriptures and we begin to say, well, that just feels right to me, instead of saying, well, that's, that's what the word of God teaches, that's, that's the proper way to interpret it, and so that is my final authority, 
then we are falling into gross error, or error if we believe in what's called a sola cardia. Instead, we believe, as John MacArthur uh, very clearly puts it, that Scripture alone has all the truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life, which is taught either explicitly or implicitly in the Scriptures. And so in connection with our sermon this morning and our our topic of this series, it's the very thing that we trust in, that we are fed by, as Jesus says, that a man cannot live by bread alone, but by every mouth or every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so it is the, the Scripture's authority, the final authority in our lives, that we trust in because it is the very thing that we need, as the Scriptures say, for life and godliness. And so what a heavy task it is for us as elders to take God's Word and, and to lay it forth before you, knowing that there are many responses to that. Let's be honest, there are more popular ways that we could teach you on Sunday morning that would generate more groups of people into our church, and yet it would be spiritual junk food. There would be more easier ways to teach you besides going verse by verse and and book by book through the New Testament and the Old Testament, but we know that this is the healthy way to teach you the whole counsel of Scripture. So understand the temptations for us in our flesh is to do things which are popular and yet we tend to, uh, to turn from that and repent of those things because we know what you need in your spiritual lives. We know what you need to be fed and that is the whole counsel of God. This is why I appreciate the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 24 because or chapter 2, verse 24, because he's laying out his ministry to the church in Colossae and really his ministry to uh, the, the, the disciples of his life, the church as a whole, and the focus and the emphasis that he has, the center point of his ministry is preaching the Word of God. It's the priority. Let's read this as we think about these things today. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy 
that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. First of all, I want us to look at briefly the the very beginning of this passage, really found just in verse 24, as Paul begins to reflect upon his suffering for the gospel, his suffering for the preaching of God's word. You have to understand in the context that, that Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, a church that he's never visited. He's, he, this church was started uh, most likely from Epaphras, which was a, a, a ministry, a, a kind of an offshoot of Paul's ministry, a disciple that, that, that Paul was able to invest in. And, 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 and that, that person then goes and, and begins to start a church in the city of Colossae. And so um, Paul has, is ministering to them, but from afar. And in a very unique circumstance, because as you probably well know, Colossians, the book of Colossians is uh, what many people consider one of the prison epistles. The letters that Paul wrote while in prison in Rome. And so Paul cannot visit them because he's in prison, and yet he is ministering to them under great duress and suffering. Paul is recounting those things as he says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's a plural. Most likely because he is there and has been there for a time. Under these great afflictions in in a a prison-like state. And yet still seeking to minister. Now we know as we read through the book of Acts that Paul's imprisonment in Rome was didn't seem like a hard knock life, if you know what I mean. I mean, he was able to, to, to still preach the gospel. He was able to receive visitors um, where he was uh, continually discipling. He was able to send out letters like this uh, to other churches, and yet it was still just a fraction of the imprisonment and the, and the sufferings that, that Paul preached. Paul was in prison because he stood upon the gospel truth. Paul was in prison because he had stood for the cause of Christ regardless of the situation. And so it's important for us to see and understand that a process of feeding the sheep is also a process of suffering because of the very words that we preach. Paul is not trying to bring some boasting upon himself. But look at what he says. It's very interesting. It's a, you can read pages upon pages of commentary on the second part of his 
verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. This is a a very controversial passage for many people across the world. One, because groups like the Roman Catholics have taken this to mean literally that Christ's suffering was insufficient. Matter of fact, the, the very idea of a purgatory state rests in a verse like this. In the idea that we as Christians must suffer because in some way the sufferings of Christ were limited So we must carry on that suffering in this life and even into purgatory to make it uh, the, the salvation act or salvific act somewhat sufficient for us. And folks, that is further from the truth. That is, that is the last thing that Paul is teaching in these passages. Matter of fact, if you read the very beginning of chapter 1, even in verse 21, we're reminded that, that you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There, there, there's no shortcomings of the Lord Jesus. There's no step that he almost reached, that he almost attained, that he needs us to carry the torch. But instead, a total sufficiency in the Lord Jesus. We add nothing to the work of Christ. Instead, what Paul is is referencing here is not that we finish anything, but that it is finished. That Christ has provided all that is necessary. And instead, his idea is that the sufferings and the afflictions from the enemies of God, from the outside of the world, that were meant for the Lord Jesus, that are aimed at the Lord Jesus, overflow to the church and the people of God as we stand upon his word. We receive an overflow of the afflictions and the sufferings by being the very body of Christ, His church. Not to add to what Christ is, but to be a reflection, to suffer as He suffered. And we know that that suffering ties back to Christ Himself and all the things that He spoke. And so as we preach... We as elders preach knowing that persecution and suffering may come. Knowing that we can take stands upon cultural issues today and face literal persecution because the gospel agitates and irritates the evil of this world. It wants to... The the evil of this world wants to say that the gospel is closed-mindedness. That it is biased. And so when we say that marriage is between a man and a woman for the fullness of their life, 
we may face persecution. When we say that God has created a person to be one gender only, that it's not the choice of the human being, we face persecution. When we believe that life begins at conception when, and that the very life is not the choice, it doesn't rest in the choice of the parents, it, it, is, it is God's creation and it deserves to, to experience life fully in this world and not be taken from, from it. We face persecution when we stand and say that the gospel is not a biased gospel, it's unbiased. That people of different color and culture deserve to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is available to them and not just a group of elite people. And when we preach this message, but most of all, we face persecution because we preach a message that agitates the soul. It agitates our very soul, our own selfishness and our self-glory. And so Paul is there in a prison cell because he proclaimed a Christ different than the way people thought the Messiah would be. And because of that, it irritated them. And so the gospel, as we preach it, as we feed the sheep, will oftentimes lead to suffering. And that suffering is not only from external, but also it's internal. Not only do the wolves from outside devour, but sometimes, if we're honest, the sheep bite back. And that is why the, the Word of God calls us to be patient and to be loving and to be gentle with the Word and yet to be bold, to trust the power of the Spirit as we preach it, to hold tightly to its sufficiency, knowing that even though people may not see the need or the necessity for it, that it is the very thing that can change their life. And so Paul brings to the forefront this suffering of the gospel. But notice second, the stewardship of the gospel. He tells the Colossians, he says, this is of which I became a minister of which I became a minister. These, I am, he's saying in essence, I am a minister of this church that God has formed, has created. And, and in this ministry, I have been made a steward, a steward as a gift from God, a steward of the word or of the gospel. I love the word steward. It's the idea of a man that's set over the affairs of someone else's house. It's not a word we necessarily really use much today. We don't necessarily have house managers. 
But imagine that you have someone that handles all the affairs of your house, of your children. These are, this is someone you trust. This is someone who administrates the things of your house from the financial aspects to the livelihood of your children, of, of your possessions, all that you own. I joke with Tom Owen, my boss, the, the, the role and responsibility that I have with his company, which a lot of it is kind of like the, I'm like the technological peacemaker, you know? I'm trying to reconcile him with technology and the things that we use in this business of construction. And I joke with him and say, I know every password that you possibly have on your computers and your applications that we use. I said, if, if you're missing money, I know you're coming to me first. And it's a great trust and responsibility that, that he places upon me that he wouldn't just give to anybody. And I recognize that and I'm thankful for that. And I couldn't help but, but linking that back to the stewardship of the gospel, protecting the very things that God has spoken and delivering it carefully and effectively to the people. What a responsibility. And so God gives this responsibility to the, the leadership and He says, be good stewards. Paul says that, that this stewardship from God was given to Him for you. He says that it's for your benefit. Why? Because his goal and his purpose is to make the word of God fully known. Literally, that means to complete the word of God. That's how it's literally written. To complete or fulfill the word of God. And what he means by that is he's not trying to add to Scripture as if Scripture is missing, but instead, he is seeking out to give the entirety of the Word of God to the people. The full scope of the preaching of God's Word, the whole counsel. He tells the Romans in Romans chapter 15. He says, so that from Jerusalem... And round about as far as Aurelium, I have preached the gospel of Christ. In Acts chapter 20, verse 27, he tells the Ephesian elders, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So in that scope and in that substance, Paul is seeking out to take the words of God and to deliver them fully as a good steward of the gospel. A good steward does not hold back things that are necessary and profitable. That would almost be stealing. If you go to a church and the preacher be, begins to or, or decides to, to hold things back because maybe they're not something that necessarily jive well with the culture of society of the church, that is stealing from you. That is stealing from the very words of God that are 
that are sent to you, that are delivered to you. Holding those things back is not for your good. It's for his good. Instead, the word of God and proclaiming the full counsel of God is for your benefit. Because in that truth, you see Christ. You see the proclamation of Christ throughout all of the, of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It's the vital component of the church that Christ is exalted, that he is high and lifted up. Look at verse 26. He says, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Jesus we proclaim. And the point that Paul is making is that in this proclamation of Christ, he is revealing a mystery that was hidden for the ages and generations, but is now being revealed. And that mystery is that these very Gentiles who are reading and understanding this gospel are a part of this universal body called the church. That the gospel was not just for one select group of people, but that God had, had designed it and planned it from the foundation of the world. That you can see glimpses of that in the Old Testament where even uh, God tells Abraham that, that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, we know that that's through Jesus and that as Jesus comes, it goes out not only to Jews but also to Gentiles all over the world. So this mystery that's given in little hidden um, in, in small measures of the Old Testament is now being revealed and he says, which is Christ in you. That you as Gentiles can possess and believe and have hope in the glory of Christ alone just like the Jews. That it's a gospel proclaimed for all people which saves a particular people out of the people from all nationalities, cultures, and tribes. You know, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that in Christian history, the gospel is withheld on a historical level from different groups of people because of what they look like or where they live. Folks, that's a part of the dark history of our world that we would feel as if this is not worthy of other people because they're different from us. And so we proclaim a gospel that is unbiased, that is without prejudice. And 
And so Paul says that we proclaim Christ, we exalt Him as preeminent. And then notice how he kind of breaks down this preaching. As Paul proclaims Christ, he does it in two ways. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Two areas, admonishing and teaching. Your, your version of the Bible, your translation of the Bible may say warning, it may say admonishing, but the context and the purpose is, is, a, is when we proclaim the gospel, we are taking the word and we are warning people with that authority. It has the idea of setting the mind of someone in proper order, correcting him or putting him right. I thought about when you're teaching a young per- person to drive and you constantly have to reach over to the wheel and, and, and realign the trajectory of this really heavy car filled with gas, right? That could smash into something and, and kill people and maybe explode. And so there's a constant correction, maybe verbally or even physically. And if we're honest with ourselves, as, as Adam talked about today, there is a a constant correction and warning that preaching must contain. I mean, it, the, the truth of, of preaching is that before we get to the glory of the gospel, we have to see the fallibility and the corruption of man. We don't just preach the sinfulness of man. We preach the sinfulness of man and the resurrection and the restoration of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. The hope of the gospel. The fact that we can be changed. And so Paul tells us that his preaching includes warning everyone. You'll also notice in 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us to admonish the unruly. In Romans, we're told to admonish one another. And when we do so, that we should admonish people with tears or with gentleness, respect, and sorrow. The second one is not only admonishing, but teaching. It would be incomplete if in correcting the steering wheel of of our spiritual lives that we don't instruct in God with the hope of the gospel, with the joy that we have in Christ. This practice is often thought about and even in, in the book of Colossians is, is the practice of putting off and putting on. With warning and rebuke comes a putting off of sin and the old man. And with the correction and the teaching of the scriptures, we put on the things of Christ and the new life that we have in Him. So this teaching then is an instructive life 
submitting yourself to the gospel, submitting yourselves to the truth of, and the whole of Scripture, which are spiritual necessities for our lives. It's very similar to 2 Timothy verse chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for recrection, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice also, three times, three times in verse 28, Paul uses the word everyone. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. As elders, our desire is that we feed the flock with the words of Christ that encompass everyone that God has entrusted to us. We want to make sure that every person that God has sent our way, that we give them the spiritual sustenance that he or she needs. Like newborn baby pups, some fight for the milk from their mothers and, and oftentimes the, the run of the litter, as, as they say, oftentimes starves to death because they don't fight hard enough to get the nourishment that they need. That's a horrible, horrible analogy for the church that we would have runts of the litter in the church that we would go well they're not fighting hard enough to learn the truths of God's word but instead we as the shepherds we make sure that all of the sheep are cared for all of them find nourishment so we want to teach everyone and we want to teach them with all wisdom not our wisdom but from the full counsel of God we strive to deliver that whole counsel to all age groups, starting from this pulpit. But even as your children go into a Disciple Me class on Sunday mornings at 9.30, shameless plug, they go and they don't just learn these pop culture stories that they're going through the full story of the Scriptures, the whole story of God. And we go book by book and verse by verse through the Scriptures because we believe that it is the most accurate way to feed you properly in your spiritual lives. I've mentioned that the elders were reading a book called uh, Shepherding the Church, I think is what it's called. Is that right, Adam? Shepherding the Church. And Timothy Whitmer is the, um, the author. He gives... Uh, 10 reasons why preaching expositionally, preaching book by book through the Bible is an effective means of feeding the sheep. I'm going to give these to you this morning. Number one, it identifies exactly what the heart of the Christian message is. Number two, it requires that the shepherd concern himself with the intent of the divine author for every text. Not our intention of the text, their intention. Number three, it respects the integri integrity of the textual units given through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
Meaning we are forced to the structure of the text itself. Number four, it keeps the pastor from riding riding his favorite hobby horses. Number five, it requires the pastor to preach the difficult or obscure texts and challenging truths of the Bible. Number six, expository preaching will encourage both pastor and congregation alike to be students of the Bible. We pray that as we preach book by book, that you would study in your own personal time, book by book, verse by verse. Expository preaching, number seven, gives boldness. For we are not expounding our own fallible views, but the word of God. Number eight, it gives confidence to the listener that he is hearing not the opinion of a man, but the very words of God. These last two, I think, are just very practical. Number nine, it gives great assistance to sermon planning. In other words, I don't have to struggle with what to preach next week. I know exactly where I'm going. I don't have to be looking through different passages of Scripture. I know I'm just going to the next text. And folks, that's not laziness, that's wisdom. And 10, it provides for the context of a long tenure in a particular place. W.A. Criswell started his preaching ministry in Texas at Genesis chapter 1. And he was a man committed to expository preaching, preaching through books of the Bible to give you a comprehensive understanding of the truth of Scripture. So my question for you this morning, an application, is how do you receive your plate at the dinner table? You know, we can all remember those times when our parents put these green mutations on our plate that they said tasted really good and they were very good for us, and we fought tooth and nail about eating it. Young people, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Cauliflower, that was one for me. It was white. It was a white mutation. And they say, oh, it's good for you. It's full of vitamins. You need it for your bodies. And you're resistant. Toss it to the dog when parents aren't looking. How do you respond to the plate that served before you the Word of God? How are you receiving it? Are you thankful? Are you trusting the wisdom of of the elders here at the church that this is the best way to feed your souls? If it's not your preferred method of delivery, do you reject it? Are you willing to, to sit with gladness and humility and submission to the authority of Christ? Are you allowing the the Word of God to penetrate your hearts. That sword of truth that's driven deep into the marrow and the bone to expose the worldliness that exists.
Are you leaving the worship service on Sundays filled with hope that Jesus Christ brings in His work on the cross? Are you encouraged? The last thing I want to do is, is make people feel like they're beat up. I, I pray that, that, that if anything, we're, we're going and, and, and dealing with the, 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 the depth of our sin and the, the seriousness of sin and, and yet the grace and the joy and the hope of the gospel. I may not smile as much as Mr. Adam, but I'm thankful for the joy that we have in Christ. That we cling to it. The last one is the struggle in the gospel. It's a struggle. If you've ever seen a butterfly come out of a cocoon, you know that that caterpillar had a lot of struggling to do before it became a beautiful butterfly. And if you've ever thought to have sympathy for that little insect and cut that cocoon open to assist or aid in a premature release of that butterfly, you would actually cause damage to it. The struggle is necessary. Understand that in our preaching ministry, our goal is verse 17. Um, excuse me, not verse 17. Our goal is the end of verse 28. That we present, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now look in verse 29. Paul says, For this I struggle. For this I labor with intensity. Heavy labor. My dad is a hard worker. He has calluses on top of his calluses. And as a kid, when I used to work with him and, and my hands would start to get rough and calloused, he'd say, that's what work, hard working hands look like. And so every so often, since I sit at a desk all day and I type on a keyboard, I say, Dad, I don't really have any calluses today to show you. They're a sign of that heavy, digging ditches, working hard with your hands type of labor. Paul says, I toil and I work hard for the gospel. Why? The goal and the vision of this preaching ministry, of this focusing upon Christ as the central point of preaching, is so that people may be presented mature in Christ. Maturity, spiritual growth. That we, as we look out to our congregation roles and we see faces and we see lives, our thoughts as elders is how can we take this person and move them along the spiritual line of maturity to more maturity to more maturity, knowing that they've never fully arrived until Christ has come. 
I don't care if you're 16 or you're 65. Our desire is to move you along. There's still more for you to learn. There's still more for you to grow in your knowledge and wisdom. Paul says at the beginning of Colossians in chapter 1, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, your maturity in Christ has a purpose. You're, as the elders push us along this spiritual timeline of maturity, we know that in that maturity, fruit will bear. Fruit will grow. The church will benefit from fruit-bearing Christians growing in the knowledge of God's Word. We know that this community will, will, will benefit from the fruit-bearing Christians of Redemption Community Church. That as your life, as you continue to walk in Christ and grow in your understanding of Him, that you will bear the fruit that Paul states to the Galatians as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That these fruits of the Spirit will manifest in your life as you grow day by day, walking in truth of the Word of God. And so our desire is to move you along. And don't hear me wrong today, please. Don't hear me in saying that Sunday morning preaching is your only opportunity to grow. It's the primary focus of our ministry at this church. Because we don't preach seven days a week, 365, right? So what we do is that in our preaching, we are guiding you to also seek to grow and mature in Christ in the things that we've talked about on Sunday, in the application that we think about on Wednesday night, and in your daily time in God's Word, in meditation, in prayer, thinking about the truths of God's Word. So that in the end, Paul is speaking in an, on an eschatological level. He says, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I envision in my head this struggling and this toil of ministry that is so necessary and, and, and um, it's enjoyable to us. We enjoy it doesn't mean that something you enjoy is not hard. It is hard, but we enjoy it because God has thought in his own wisdom to call us to do these very things, to invite you to the gospel, to invite you to the table, and to feed you uh, upon the truths of the gospel. And so while it may be hard work, we know that in the end there will be a day where you will be presented before Christ as your groom, mature 
And I love what Paul says. The struggling and the toil is only accomplished with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. <laughs> Man, what, what comforting words to my heart. That the, the Holy Spirit of God is empowering me for ministry, empowering these brothers for ministry, just like He empowers you for ministry. And you may not stand and preach the gospel every day, but He's empowering you to preach the gospel to your neighbors, to take a, a time of the year where people, strangers from all over your neighborhood, will literally come and knock on your door. He will empower you to teach them, to preach the gospel to them. Because in the end, we know that as, she, as shepherds of this flock, submitting to the authority of Christ, we will be responsible for how we feed you. And as Paul says, we want to do it in a way that your hearts, he says in verse 2, are encouraged that you are being knit together in unity by the love of Christ to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding that the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, all, whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Folks, you and I are on a journey together to grow and to mature under the counsel and the authority of God's Word. And that one day, and not until that day, but one day we will be mature. May we journey together along that path, growing in the knowledge of God learning from every one of these brothers that God has sent to redemption as elders to teach us, to guide and direct our lives, to feed our souls. And may in turn, may you be so encouraged by the word that you would turn outward into this world and you would desire to take the things that you learn from God's word and the wisdom that you have gained and the knowledge and you would say I got to teach this to other people I got to pass this on this is too good to hold to myself and you can look around and you can see people all over the world all in your environments, ignorant of the truth of the whole counsel of God. They don't understand the whole counsel. They don't see how it fits together. I've been so encouraged, even in, in the time, this small period of time in, in our redemption, in the re history of this redemption church, 
where people have, have commented about, you know, I've never really seen the Bible fit together and, and, and all the pieces put together before like I have now. That's encouraging to us. That's encouraging to us because we, we are trying and desperately seeking to make those pieces help you see how they fit together. We're not making them fit together. They fit together on their own. How many people around you don't get how Jesus is foretold in the book of Genesis? How many people around you could not even take 15 words or, or two phrases and summarize the whole counsel of God? Could you do that? Could you summarize the whole story of God's redemptive plan from Genesis to Revelation in like two or three sentences? If you can, I, I encourage you to try. Because it's something that people all around you need to know. And so as you are fed here at redemption, you also could feed others. It flows to your children. It flows down to your grandchildren. It flows down to disciples that you may teach. It flows down to gospel conversations that you have with unbelievers who come to Christ and need you to invest and teach them God's Word. So understand and know that as you proclaim the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel, that we do so, as Paul says, with admonishment and with teaching. Keeping Christ at the center.